And we're back. It's part two of this two-parter. Let's get into the meat of things. <laughs> I want to put my face up in the meat, the meat of things. <laughs> Maya goes to the grocery store. She's in the meat aisle. She's like, mm, can I put my face on that? <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> right in the meat of things. I walk down the aisle and I'm like, right in the meat of things. <laughs> Like, I'll take a piece of steak. Don't need to wrap it up. I'm just gonna put it on my face. I'm sorry, guys. I think we're making two completely separate <laughs> jokes right now, and that's funny. I don't know. Maybe I'm like chat GPT because I can't make a joke. But up bump. Yeah, that's what I was trying to do. Okay, so to refresh or to rehash. In our last episode, we discussed, like, recent developments in artificial intelligence, specifically generative AI like ChatGPT, and, you know, the potential fears and risks that come with the rapid growth and development of this technology and what that means for us. We kind of dived into, like, the existential stuff. I I became a panicked little baby. A little tin hat. Yeah, girl. science fiction. You no, know. I think you kept your cool for the most part. Yeah, I was trying to. But now I want to talk about a story which is currently unfolding. It's not about the potential threats of AI. It's about like a very real threat that it poses to a specific profession that I think speaks to the kinds of ways that this type of automation could come for a lot of white collar and creative jobs. And that's the writer's strike in which ChatGPT does play a very central role. The culprits. I'm Hannah. I'm Maya. And this is Rehash, a podcast about the social media phenomenons that strike a nerve in our culture, only to be quickly forgotten, but we think are due for a revisiting. This is a pre-season episode two-parter that we're putting out about ChatGPT and the writer's strike because it's an ongoing issue that, like, we don't really want to wait to look back on. It's very much the nature of our reality and our potential future. And mm. we have a lot to say about it. We've got a whole bunch of things to say, as per usual. As per usual. And if you like our show and want to hear more from us, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rehashpodcast, where we have bonus episodes, weekly mini episodes, and early access to our regular programming. Um, if you don't want to join the Patreon, feel free to rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcast. It does really help. And also, we have Instagram and Twitter. What I remember to post on our Twitter, <laughs> it's awesome. My Instagram posts are just my attempt at Photoshop, and it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> So to begin, Maya, what do you know about the writer's strike? My understanding of it is basically that ChatGPT is posing like a major threat and like immediate risk to writers in Hollywood because 
major studios and like streaming giants who are essentially studios because of vertical integration have basically insinuated that they're going to be using ChatGPT in the future to write scripts, which means that the writers who are currently already undergoing severe wage cuts might be experiencing this even more. And so all the writers have kind of come together and they have striked um, against the studios and against the streaming giants to basically say, like, we're here, our jobs matter, and we deserve to be fucking paid for it. Yeah, I mean, like, that's sort of correct, especially the chat GPT stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong. um, But I'll explain a bit more about, like, how the WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America strike, like, works and, like, how that's been – striking has been, like, a tool used by unions in Hollywood, like, since the first half of the 20th century. So – the writer's strike is actually the WGA strike. The mm. WGA is the Writers Guild of America, and it's the union that covers professional writers for screen, television, and new media. In order to work in Hollywood as a writer, you kind of have to do it through the WGA. I think there are some things like animation writing that aren't always covered by it, but generally it's through the WGA. And the thing about Hollywood is that like basically any section of the industry you work in is probably going to be unionized. Like, actors are in SAG-AFTRA, directors are in the Directors Guild of America, like... DGA. DGA. Saying that like I'm in it. (laughs) Yeah, you were like, my people. Represent. (laughs) Um, And, like, it's been like this since, you know, the very early days of Hollywood. So the WGA has been around since 1954 um, when a bunch of different smaller unions for writers merged to create like kind of one united front across the country and across the industry. And they have been negotiating their contracts with the major producers and like studios since then. As technology has advanced and studios have found new ways to profit off of film and television the union has had to continuously fight for their rightful compensation along the way. So in the 60s, when they started playing like movies on TV that had already aired in cinemas, they struck because they weren't being compensated for that. Like, Yeah, for these places profiting off of. Yeah, exactly. And then them. with the invention of video cassettes, there were strikes because they hadn't previously worked out how to be compensated for the profits from that. And mm. then most recently in 2008 slash 2007, um, when content started being made for the internet, they struck again for like digital new media and kind of putting that under the umbrella as well. Uh, content being put on the internet in what oh, way? Oh, sorry, content being made for the internet. Mm, okay. Um, it's like web series? New media. Yeah, okay. exactly. So basically, they've just always had to like adapt to the times and like make sure they're being included in every new kind of conversation about, you know, the potential for entertainment and like what that means. Um, and now with the domination of like streaming over the entertainment industry and the invention of chat GPT, they're striking again. And this is one of, like, the few industries in the U.S. that's, like, so heavily unionized. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, like, a lot of, um, I think a lot of, like, blue-collar industries, mm. there are, yeah, there yeah. are labors. 
But I think as far as like a creative mm-hmm. industry, yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's Hollywood is kind of special in that way. And like the fact that it has such a long history and has like ha- been able to like continue to like uphold like labor rights is really fascinating. So every three years, the WGA renegotiates its minimum base agreement or MBA with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. And that represents like the major studios. It's basically like as a response. I don't know if it was as a response to the unions or the unions were response to them, but it's just like their way of like having a united front too in the negotiations. Mm. So they're all involved in the AMPTP because it's like Netflix and like Amazon, but then also, you know, Fox and Paramount and Universal and all of those people. All those big boys. All those big boys. So for the 2023 negotiations, the WGA addressed ongoing concerns about how the shift from traditional network TV to streaming has changed the nature of their job, how frequently they can get work and how they're compensated. And importantly, they also requested that limitations be put on the use of AI for screenwriting purposes. Mm. Mm -hmm. The estimated total increase that the WGA proposed would cost the studios combined Four hundred and twenty nine million per year. From what I could see online, there's like less than twenty thousand members of the WGA. I saw fifteen thousand somewhere. If that uh, four hundred and twenty nine million were like to be divided equally, which it wouldn't, it would basically be like twenty eight k per year per member. Like that's not that much money. Where is this money coming? Were the WGA to have all of their proposals met and like have their needs met this is the amount in total that the studios would like estimated to have to like pay if they're raising like minimums and they're raising um residuals and stuff like that right 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 yeah the amptp's counter offer so far is 86 million per year which would mean $5,733 per member per year <laughs> it's a big difference <laughs> yes the WGA estimates that the writer strike is costing the California economy $30 million a day. In the 2007-2008 strike, which lasted 100 days, um, it costed California an estimated $2.1 billion. If this current one goes on for as long, yeah, it could cost about $3 billion. That's insane. And with productions being put on pause or shut down from the strike, the studios are already like losing themselves millions of dollars. So the estimated losses that they've put out, like that's for the actual just economy of the state. But the, the studios themselves are already losing like money, probably going to lose as much money as they are unwilling to like give to to the, the people who make them rich (laughs) like the amount that they're asking is probably going to be surpassed and the amount of money they're losing by having production shut down so before we go deeper into the issue of ai in hollywood i want to discuss a technological advancement that has already made significant changes to the screenwriting profession the invention of streaming platforms those little (laughs) shitters um as a consumer have you noticed like the shift from network tv to streaming like what would you consider are the big differences between the types of content that's being put out? Oh, between the types of content. Interesting. 
Um, well, for one, yes, I have noticed a shift. I feel like yeah, I, mean. I came of age in a time when network was all we watched. The family would gather around the TV and consume like America's the same Next thing. Top model. You have to decide about what channel you wanted to watch. And now it's like, ugh, I almost want to say like siloed. Like it's very individualized. Like everyone has their own little account on the streaming service and you can watch whatever you want you watch it on your own personal device half Mm -hmm. the time which changes the nature of like what they're making for people because it's it doesn't actually have to have like necessarily mass appeal because it can appeal to like more of the individual taste like the person watching on their personal gadget i don't know (laughs) like whenever i look at network tv now which i don't watch it because like we don't have cable here uh at our house like we just use chromecast and we watch off of the streaming platforms so you know (laughs) but um i find the shows on network to be like longer running they tend to kind of they have to adhere to like commercial breaks for example so they have to like kind of write to accommodate for the commercial break which changes like the nature of the script because they're kind of going for like seasonal runs and like they usually have like 22 episodes a season it feels like they yeah they carry out for longer which means the plots have to carry out longer yeah, I just feel like streaming, you can almost get a bit more inventive with it in a way because you don't have to like be kind of tailored towards advertisers. So it does kind of have some some merits to it. And I find there's just like just a greater diversity of content. I mean, I, I know in Canada, we just have so many cop shows. Every single Canadian TV show just feels like either a cop or a history show. And that's like, that's all we have. <laughs> I know there's more, but that's just kind of what I'm seeing on network. <laughs> television. No, Every time I turn it on, I'm like, huh. I mean, like there are ads all over the city right now for a reality show about farmers who want to fall in love. So that's what Canada has going for it. Okay, and that's amazing. (laughs) Like, sorry, we should pay more attention to those people. It's true. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, like that is sort of like one of the big differences. Although I would say like, I always thought that network TV must still be running like 22 episode seasons, which is like, well, yeah, we're used to the shows we grew up watching. But apparently, even then, like, sitcoms on network, a lot of the time are running to, like, 13-episode seasons. And that now might be going down to 10. Like, now. Oh, I see. Okay, but yeah. that, that's, like, a change that's happened. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yes, yes, yes. And, like, obviously, that's not an invention of the streaming services. That's something that, like, HBO and Showtime and, like, premium cable, I think, were doing first. And then also, like, you know, the Brits have been doing short seasons of things. But Yeah, but I feel like streaming has greatly affected viewership for network oh (laughs) for sure and i mean in some ways in other ways like shows that are able to find an immediate home from network onto streaming they do better it's thinking about something like schitt's creek which like was a show it's a canadian tv show but like found an american audience and then I think through being on Netflix in other countries probably kept the show going. Yeah, it brings it to more eyes. Yeah. yeah. It brings it right to the comfort so that was of your sort laptop. of a breakout hit, you know? Yeah. So yeah, streaming services like Netflix and Prime Video, they opt to put out shorter seasons of more shows so that they are constantly delivering new content. They'll put out all like yeah. eight episodes of some like teen drama show and then you finish that and then next week they've got like eight new episodes of some reality tv show like it's just constantly being yeah ever since streamers vertically integrated it means that they're producing their own stuff which is just like completely exploded the amount of content that they're gonna put out uh, yeah for viewers which is insane (laughs) yeah it's it's constant and so like 
because of that, like Netflix in particular is pretty well known for having this habit of putting out a ton of new shows only to cancel them right after the first season before they've really found their audiences. And I don't know about you, but I've gotten to this thing where I won't even start a Netflix original show until I know there's a second season coming a lot of the time because I'm like, I've just, I've started so many things and then be left on like a cliffhanger forever because they never renew it and like they don't really care enough to like see those projects through. Yeah, it's very blue balling. It's very. Um, Yeah, I I honestly don't watch Netflix very much anymore. So I think partly because of that, because also they were constantly taking off the stuff I really did like on there. Just even movies, like famous movies that weren't produced by Netflix, but just stuff like that. It's like this constant rotation. And then when all the other streamers came out and started taking their IP out of Netflix as well, it just became less interesting to me. So I just canceled my account. I was like, I don't want this anymore. Oh, I didn't know you canceled your Netflix account. That shit's expensive. Yeah. I'm I'm on my parents' Netflix account. Thanks, guys. I was on my brother's and then I got logged out and I was like, you know what? He's done enough for me. I can't ask him for the password again. True. I don't pay for any streaming services. (laughs) Um, I pay for Crave, which is like the Canadian HBO, basically, HBO Max. uh, And that's all I'll pay for. And wow, they have a terrible interface. (laughs) Like, it is truly abysmal. Do you have any specific shows that that's happened to you? I had that with, like, Glow. Yeah, I was watching Glow. The, the problem is also that I'm, like, so distracted, like, I can't really commit to a show. I have to, like, really be committed and kind of binge it to be able to stay focused with it. Uh, like, if I kind of deviate from it a bit or, like, have to wait for another season, I'll just, I won't revisit it. Mm-hmm. So Glow, even, I, my interest was waning. And I do think a lot of that is due to streamers in general, but. Yeah. So, like, despite the fact that thanks to streamers, more content is currently being made than ever before, making a stable living as a television writer is becoming, like, impossible. Mm -hmm. So there are so many anecdotes. I don't know if you've seen them, like, going around on Twitter um, from various writers who, like, despite working on hit TV shows, a lot of them streaming shows, um, they've had to rely on, like, other jobs or even food stamps to get by. Yeah, I saw this tweet that I I shared it on Instagram a bit ago um, by this writer named Kira Jones or Kyra Jones. The tweet was saying, in case you guys are wondering why a WGA strike might be impending, my first residual check for the broadcast show I wrote on was $12,000. I just got my first residual check for my streaming show. $4. Yeah. Kind of a a story that was also going around on Twitter is uh, writer Alex O'Keefe who won a WGA award for writing on The Bear, which was a huge hit. Well, so he had, yeah, he had a negative bank account when he accepted the award. He had to rent a bow tie to go to the Emmys. Yeah, which is just insane to think about. Um, The co-creators of Yellow Jackets, which it's on a premium cable network. It's not like on a streamer, Um, but they were paid 40K before the 25% deducted for commission and taxes between them for eight months of work between them so they had to split it in half that's before tax deductions yeah 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 oh my fucking god um (laughs) and these are the creators these aren't even like staff writers and yellow jackets is a yellow jackets and the bear are both hit shows the thing is is that no one knew that they were going to be hits. Right. Right? Yeah, and yeah. that kind of brings us into the idea of mini rooms. Have you heard of this concept? Very, very surface level and not really. Okay. So 
Perfect. Because I'm about to explain it. <laughs> yes and yeah, no. And, and not at all. Um, so in a traditional writer's room for an episodic network TV show, there would be a full writer's room working on 20 episode seasons, around 20 episodes, uh, spanning pre-production into filming. During production, writers might get the opportunity to work on set and gain the necessary experience in order to get a higher paid position like writer-producer or eventually showrunner, which is sort of like the highest you can go. Mm -hmm. I've been reading this where they also work with the actors as well. Like they'll work kind of with people as it goes along to kind of help things flow organically. Yeah, and you might be writing the scripts for the season ongoing like, yeah. while you're seeing it come to life it gives you a better idea it's like an active engaged process yeah, yeah. exactly um and when production wrapped on that show a writer you know they might face long periods of unemployment before their next gig but like because of stuff like residuals there might be some form of income coming in you know or they could expect to have some money coming into their and for the yeah. for the listeners, what's a residual? A residual is it's a percentage of money that you get paid for like reruns and reuses mm-hmm. of something that you've written or like worked on. Yeah, so it can be very lucrative. Yeah, it it can be, or like at least it can it can help tide you over in a job where like secure employment isn't necessarily like the norm. Yeah, because you're on a show, it wraps season wraps and then you have to go find a new job after however many weeks yeah Um, and they lasted a lot longer yeah these seasons like they're lasting a greater portion of the year yeah and then you yeah exactly the compensation rate for that time should kind of factor in the fact that like you're going to have time off as well so it is maybe a little higher than like if you worked like a different white collar job but it's because it's kind of to like hold you over However, streamers frequently use mini rooms um, and there's like a number of different kind of definitions that have been given for a, a mini room, but they essentially just mean like fewer writers making less money. Awesome. Yeah. So a mini room will often take place during pre-production, sometimes before a show is greenlit with like a handful of writers. Because streaming shows only have about like eight to ten episodes per season, They'll only be employed for a few weeks of work. Mm-hmm. And they never make it to set. Yeah. So the shows are in pre-production. Sometimes they're not greenlit. And that means the writers can be paid a minimum amount. And then they yeah, aren't guaranteed the chance to then go to set and like watch that happen. Because they've done all their work already. There's not like the same justification for them like updating the scripts as they go. And is there no equivalent to residuals for streaming services? Like you don't get paid based on how many views, clicks that like a series gets? There are residuals. I don't think it's quite the same. And so some of the things that they were asking for in these negotiations was like residuals for international markets, right? Like if you have a show you're on something like netflix and like there are all these international versions of netflix and it becomes a hit there like getting paid for those plays as well i think like with reruns obviously it's based on like the popularity of the show that they'll they'll keep playing it for however many times however many time slots whatever but it is like the network deciding for the audience more or less what they're gonna see and showing it to them whereas like netflix it's like the onus is actually on the user of the streaming service to go then click again on a movie tv show whatnot and they're always going to be promoting the next new thing the next put out right like there isn't really as much space for longevity yeah 
Um, and then also... Everything gets buried out, basically. What a lot of these uh, services are starting to do right now, especially like Warner Brothers, which has HBO Max, they're just taking stuff off the platform because they don't want to pay those residuals. Yeah. So the WGA, they did ask in their proposal to reward programs with greater viewerships with like higher residuals. So a viewer-based residual... And, like, they requested for transparency regarding program views so they would know how much money they should technically be worth considering how much play something is getting. And they were rejected with no counteroffer. So awesome. I love that they can just be like, no. I know. <laughs> it's hot. Sorry. That was sarcastic. So, yeah, because the shows are in pre-production, uh, writers can be paid the minimum amount some writers have even reported having to work unpaid past their contracts because they were given like five weeks to write an entire season of a show, hour-long episodes, and were unable to finish on time. Part of me is shook that this hasn't even happened sooner because that is insane. <laughs> the strike? Yeah. There it was... takes a long time to figure this out, but yes. Well, so they did vote to like authorize a strike in 2020, I believe. Mm. So, like, I think it is a long time coming. Writers in many rooms are not included in the production process, like we said, um, which is why you have now during the strike all these, like, streaming and, like, premium cable shows continuing to film during the, the strike, or at least, like, trying to. Kim Kardashian crossed the picket line for American Horror Story. What a fucking scab. I know. And she <laughs> plays a character named Deirdre, which I just think is really funny. It's my mom's name. Yeah, the first thing I think when I look at Kim Kardashian, I'm like, That's yeah, a Deirdre. That's a Deirdre. <laughs> yeah, of course she'd be a scab. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, without any kind of like long-term employment, security, the opportunity for career advancement, or stable income... Streaming has turned screenwriting into a gig economy job. Mm, as every other job on this planet yes. now is. <laughs> yeah, basically. And um, the AMPTP have like lowballed and or rejected most of the WGA's proposals to fix the issue of mini rooms. So I'm going to tell you a bit more about the AMPTP. Those little shitters. Who's your favorite legacy media company? <laughs> MGM. <laughs> <laughs> they're confusing me so much right now that they still exist and they're like they're trying something i think they're like trying to make their own streaming service or something they're really having a tough time of it <laughs> aren't we all but that lion spooky um many of the companies that make up the amptp have made the news for like mass layoffs budget cuts and the removal of their own content from their platforms this is all to appease wall street which is mad at the streaming companies do you want to know why? Why are they mad, Hannah? <laughs> um, Would you say that they're a, a bull seeing red? She got it. Overall, in the past 20 years, like the yearly revenue for these media companies has been on an upward trajectory. But in the early days of the pandemic, streamers like Netflix saw a boom in subscribers because everyone was stuck inside watching stuff. So there was like this one-time increase in revenue that was destined to plateau when things reopened, but it kind of gave false expectations about like the growing value of these companies. Yeah. And Wall Street wants constant growth. So Netflix saw its stock value go down when they, you know, eventually faced subscriber loss. And I think they lost subscribers for the first time in like 10 years. It's so wild to think that this like mass illness that killed so many people was actually such a sleigh time for 
for certain people as well. Mm-hmm. Like they're like, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so like all of these companies are like, we're losing money. It's hard out here, bruh. Um, but do you want to know um, how big of an increase uh, the co-CEOs of Netflix saw last year? Lay it on me, brother. So they each made around $50 million last year um, and they made it, that was a 25% and 32% increase, respectively. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I, I cry for the, the hardships of this world. And I cry for all the people suffering. But most of all, I cry for the CEOs of Netflix because their kajillion thread count Egyptian cotton <laughs> bedsheets, they need one more thread. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. No, I love it. Um, But like these kinds of like increases, I think theirs might have been one of the higher ones, but like an increase in salary was sort of seen by a lot of the CEOs of these companies that were like supposedly going through it. So at the same time that like there are all these losses and stock value for these companies you're also seeing new streaming services like paramount plus and disney plus that had like popped up to compete with original streamers going into these endeavors of like starting up these streaming platforms like knew that it was going to cost them some money right like there were going to be financial risks and like it's an investment that would later pay off but then those losses and like their stocks going down in value like freaked them out. So then they started doing all these like mass like employment cuts and like firing like large parts of their companies. Mm-hmm, like human beings. Yeah, people. And so even though like they're all doing what they can to pay the least amount of money for like the least amount of people, these studios are kind of trying to bring it to a zero sum by replacing their workers with artificial intelligence ah and this is where we take off the mask and we say ah it was chat gpt the whole time (laughs) so how ai plays into it ai poses an existential threat on many facets of the entertainment industry which the writer's strike has brought some much needed attention to Per their proposal breakdown, the WGA has asked studios to regulate use of artificial intelligence on MBA-covered projects, AI can't write or rewrite literary material, can't be used as a source material, and MBA-covered material can't be used to train AI. Okay, so breaking that down, it can't rewrite literary material, so it can't go take someone's existing IP and adapt it. Yes. And then... For being used as source material, meaning that it can't write an original thing from the technology itself. Yeah. Okay. And then the last one is um, MBA covered material can't be used to train AI. So if we've if you've written something under the minimum basic agreement, like as a contracted writer for the studios, that can't be then given to the AI to Ooh. like be training it. And it also means like the AI can't like read your script and then rewrite it for you and it can't write a script that you would then have to go and like rewrite as well because that's kind of a proposed thing is like well it'll give you kind of like the the skeleton of a script and then like a real writer will come in and like touch it up or whatever because <sighs> that's what writers are the amptp response rejected the proposal countered by offering annual meetings to discuss advancements in technology let's just like why don't we all sit down and fucking kumbaya about yeah, it have a feeling circle let's have a kiki and, <laughs> and really just talk about it yeah who wants the talking stick i actually think that's the most responsible way to handle any kind of like potentially dangerous 
technology. Guys, chill. Like, yeah. sit down on the carpet in a circle, cross your legs. Oh my god, can you imagine? <laughs> World War One wouldn't have happened. If, if, <laughs> if freaking Kaiser Wilhelm sat down and and just chilled the fuck out, you know? Had a heart-to-heart. It just explained it, the advances in technology. So as you've laid out, generative AI like ChatGPT learns from what it's been fed or trained on, and it scrapes data from the internet. So while the work from ChatGPT is being called original, it's in fact not, and like sounds like it's kind of impossible for it to not be somewhat derivative, yeah, because it's taking from other things. Beyond an ethical standpoint, like at this point, ChatGPT hasn't really been able to write like compelling dialogue or like from what i've seen proposals for any kind of new ideas or like innovative um plots yeah it's a boring flop yeah (laughs) (laughs) basically thank you so i want to talk about screenwriting as an art a little bit can you think of any like tv shows or movies where the writing was something that really stuck out to you one of the ones that comes to mind for me is Game of Thrones, which, okay, like, yeah, she never shuts the fuck up about. But, <laughs> like, the first four seasons, I believe, George R. R. Martin, who had written the books, was really instrumental in helping them adapt it to TV and, like, really instrumental in, like, the writing process. And then he dipped out to do what? We don't know, because has he written more books in the series or finished it? No. But <laughs> you could see the drop in quality so abruptly the second he left, because he is, like, a very talented writer. And you see plot lines just flailing around. You see them starting to be more sensational. You see them going for kind of, like, cheaper shocks and, like, death fakeouts and stuff. And it just took, like, such a nosedive. And then, of course, the finale was, like, I don't even... It was a dumpster fire. Yeah, so many amazing shows. Like, I think a lot about Freaks and Geeks and how tender the writing is in that and just how real it is. Pen15, that's a show that, like, without Maya Erkstein and Anna Conkle, I believe their names are, um, without those two, like, having lived as middle schoolers and gone through the absolute horror of that period of your life like we would have never gotten that show and it's it's through like raw sheer talent that they were able to bring that to us because that's like a really tricky premise they're both playing middle schoolers but they're both fully grown adult women and it works and like the emotional beats hit and it's just such an amazing show but it couldn't have been done without you know their talent absolutely even thinking about shows that are known for having bad writing, like something like Riverdale, which like I watched for a long time. I think I stuck around until at least like season five or something of that show. And like the writing is insane. It's like nutso. And sometimes it feels like it was maybe like algorithm generated. <laughs> so AI it's, created. <laughs> it's just a mix of like random references to stuff. But then like I kind of love that there is room for human error. You know what I mean? Like I like that there is also shows that are like kind of poorly written. Famously so. Because like. But they're poorly written and not in a boring way. In a way that like fails spectacularly. You know what I mean? Like AI I feel like art written by ai would be like palatable but not spectacularly bad and that's that's the gripe i have (laughs) yeah no and i think there's like i just think there's something really beautiful about like an array of quality (laughs) being available to us i I continue to say like there's nothing i hate more than just like a movie or a show that's 
medium. like boring yeah, yeah like i need it like I, again showgirls is one of my top four movies on letterboxd that movie is garbage and i love it so much it's so good it's so wonderful thinking about something like valley of the dolls which like <laughs> the, our favorite line from that movie is boobies 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 who needs them <laughs> it's a it's a it's a like a dumpster fire of a movie in a lot of ways it's kind of unhinged but it's so fun and like i don't think that you could like strap the same kind of camp enjoyment well, from yeah. like a badly written ai project the beauty of like naive camp is is like someone <laughs> earnestly believing that what they're writing is good and having this just really limited understanding of how people who watch things enjoy things what the beauty of it is that you can see where the heart is yeah you know or things that are like up for like debate i think something like a ryan murphy property where sometimes the stuff is really well written sometimes it's really bad and then there's sometimes there's stuff like scream queens which some people think is like really funny and like campy and like well written and i, I don't know i don't think it's that good we're both glee uh truthers <laughs> I am season- the first season of glee i'm sorry but some of you just genuinely didn't get it like oh. i don't know what to say like that was satire yeah the first <laughs> the first half of the first season of glee is like People will take out of context clips from the first season and be like, what is this? This is terrible. And it's like, honey, like. It's intentionally written that way. You didn't get it. Like, obviously, it started sucking after like season two or three. But like, honestly, it was a great show to begin with. And then also, it's just like the fact that there is room for debate there. I'm just trying to say is like, I like that you can notice when writing is good or bad or like controversial. And I think that that is something that can only really come when you're thinking about like human beings and what they're trying to say with what they're writing Mm -hmm. like the intention behind it and ai there's no intention behind it it's not trying to say something so you're not really debating like the authorial intent Mm -hmm. exactly um other than that the intent is just to please yeah and like i don't actually need to be pleased every time i watch something i don't need to be pleased i want to be like moved i want to be in one way or another yeah exactly I think not everyone who knows how to write can write. And in being able to use certain words or mimic a certain style is not the same as being a good writer. Screenwriting itself is a specific skill that people go to school for and still can't always do well. It's so difficult. Like anytime I watch a show that is extremely cleverly done, I'm like... How are you guys staying on the ball with this? Like, when I first watched Breaking Bad, I was like, oh, they planned the ending when they started that show. When I got to the end, I was like, that was planned from the beginning. It had to be. All of the through lines were there. You could pick all of, all the strings and they were all connected. No, they hadn't planned it. That is how talented they were, is that they were able to get to that conclusion. You have to kind of anticipate what audiences will want, but you can't listen to them too much. Like, there's so much balance involved. Like, it's such a difficult skill. You you have to keep people engaged. You have to play a long game as far as, like, tone and, like, knowing how to, like, keep a certain style and a certain voice, like, consistent throughout, like, different plot lines, different kinds of roads your show might go down well again like the example people always use is succession like could ai write succession and it's like yeah succession is such a distinct tone of voice like it's so wry it's so stylized like it's very unnatural but at the same time it 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 moves really quickly it keeps you engaged and it 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 also moves you emotionally you know yeah so i've read a few articles from people who tried to get chat gpt to write them a script or a movie pitch and like at least where the technology is right now, 
the results were mediocre at best, I would say. A blurry um, JPEG, as they say. <laughs> if we were using generative AI to like come up with screenplay ideas, like I said earlier, those are going to be fairly like derivative. They're going to be based off of like what already exists to base it off of. A writer for The Guardian, for example, asked uh, ChatGPT to write a hit blockbuster that will make them a lot of money. And it basically just gave them the plot of Interstellar. And then the casting suggestions were like Brie Larson and like Daisy Ridley and Chris Hemsworth and people who are in Star Wars and Marvel movies. So like for an example... That's its frame of reference. Yeah. Is the things that are there already. The things that are there and popular. Yeah. And are guaranteed to like maximize numbers potentially, but not necessarily the best artistic choices. Yeah. Or just choices that have already been made. Yeah, exactly. These are already sci-fi stars. It's mimicry. Like it it mimics human intelligence, but right now it, it can't replicate it or be it. Yeah, exactly. And then these nerds on Twitter... (laughs) this whole two-parter is just us calling people pasty nerds (laughs) and i stand by it who let them have so much power i don't know we should have bullied them harder yeah i i really think this geek regime needs to end (laughs) so there are these nerds on twitter who in december were using chat gpt to um come up with like screenplay ideas and like scripts and stuff and they gave a few different examples of what they did and for one, they asked for heart-wrenching ideas for movies that'll like really move you. And I'll just give you two of the ones that uh, ChatGPT came up with. <laughs> Real gems. They're really unique. The first, a young man grapples with his sexuality in the fear of coming out to his conservative parents. He ultimately finds the strength to be true to himself, but not without facing challenges and heartache along the way. I have never heard that before in my life. Um, and then another is a teenage girl is bullied at school and struggles to find her place in the world. She turns to drug and alcohol to cope, but eventually finds solace in a supportive group of friends. 13 reasons why. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not 13 reasons why. You know what, Chachi? Famously, what if that she girl didn't. does not find a <laughs> What if she didn't find a support group of friends? Okay, Chachi PT. So what if she, every friend was actually a reason? Okay. Touching. But it's like, they're like, look how time saving this is. And it's like, would it take you a lot of time to come up with that? <laughs> really? Well, it really just is. And this is so I'm I'm currently making a video about, spoiler, about um the immersive Van Gogh series and what it signals about where we are with art and the way we consume it. And like, I talk a bit about AI art in that. And I use a clip from that same interview with Mo. Godat. Oh god, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. The Google, ex-Google X officer. And in the interview, the host of Diary of CEO, Stephen Bartlett, basically just makes all these claims about creativity where he's like, to me, creativity is just, it's taking like a bunch of things you know and putting it together and getting a result, right? And like ChatGPT can do that. It can take a bunch of things it knows and put it together and make a result. And it's like, that's not what creativity is. And it also just makes me worried because it's like, I've always been a huge advocate that, like, people who are in the sciences, like, I had to take two sciences in school. I know who people who are in, like, sciences have to take electives, and, like, I'm pretty sure it's a requirement in most schools to take humanities, but I think they need to take more humanities courses. Because it's, like, 
yes, you definitely have a better understanding of like the intricacies, like the under the hood. Like they have a better understanding of like what's inside the hood than any of us do. I don't understand it. I suck at science. But like you have to also understand like where the car is going and why the car is there in the first place. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like that's what the humanities teach you. And I just think it's all these guys being like, okay, well, we have the tech. So obviously that's the answer. Like, again, going back to that positivist thing, like logic and reason, like you put all these things together, you get a result. And it's like, to me, that is not what art is. Yeah. That's not what writing is. Like, (laughs) Women in STEM, more like men in humanities. That's what we need to start celebrating. Male English majors. Um, Those same nerds on Twitter then turned an idea that ChatGPT gave them for like a sci-fi movie um, into a script or they got ChatGPT to turn it into a script and I've only got like one page of it. Was it weird science and they were like and I could create the girl with the biggest titties on earth and my life would be so much easier. No that would be more interesting. Um, This is a film about the end of the world where only one member of each family is allowed to escape to a new planet. Mm. And this is the script they came up with. Fade into the living room where three siblings, Mark, Lila, and Anna, are sitting in silence staring at the TV. A news anchor is speaking on the screen. News anchor. This is it, folks. The end of the world as we know it. In just a few hours, a massive asteroid will collide with Earth, wiping out all life as we know it. Mark to his siblings quietly. I can't believe this is happening. Lila, tearfully. I can't believe we are going to die. Anna, angrily. But we don't have to. We have the option to go to the new planet, where everyone is going to refuge. Mark, confused. What do you mean? Anna, explaining. I heard that the government is sending a spaceship to the new planet, but only one person per family gets to go. We have to decide who gets to go. Lila, shocked. Are you serious? We can't just choose one of us to go and leave the others behind. Anna, frustrated. We don't have. Fade into the kitchen where Lila is standing at the counter, chopping vegetables. She is wearing an apron and has a frustrated look on her face. Lila to herself. Ugh, why does cooking have to be so hard? I can never get the vegetables to the right size. (laughs) Honestly, same. (laughs) Cut to the mini gazebo area where Mark is sitting at a small table, staring at his phone. He looks bored. Mark to himself. This is so boring. I wish I had something interesting to do. Cut back to the kitchen, where Lila is now stirring a pot on the stove. She looks even more frustrated. Lila to herself. Why won't this sauce thicken up? I followed the recipe exactly. Cut to the bedroom, where Anna is lying on the bed, flipping through a magazine. She looks bored and restless. Anna to herself. I'm so bored. There's nothing to do in this house. Cut back to the kitchen where Lila is now plating the finished meal. She looks relieved and proud. Lila to herself. Finally, it's done. I hope it tastes good. Cut to the living room where Mark, Anna, and Lila are sitting at a table enjoying the meal that Lila cooked. They all look happy and satisfied. Lila to Mark and Anna. This was a great. And then they didn't finish it. I love when people in shows tell me exactly what they're thinking and feeling at all times little lesson everybody that's like writing number one you have to make sure your characters are saying what they're thinking at all times i love when someone's bored and then they're boredly saying that there's nothing interesting to do and that they say it multiple times yeah in a scene i love when two different people are bored (laughs) (laughs) anyways that was all just 
just an example and like this was one of the earlier i think attempts of using chat gpt or at least publicized attempts at using chat gpt to do something like this but these nerds seemed really fucking excited about that about the possibilities of that so like i don't know if there are people out there that like are impressed by that and want to produce something like it it does make me scared about the kinds of work that could end up being made or just about like people's barometers for what is worth making anytime i talk to anyone about the mcu <laughs> and they say well, they love it and that brings me into another part <laughs> no offense guys i'm, I'm kidding i'm, I'm kidding <laughs> well i don't know i mean okay Ultimately, like, I do think that this comes down to the line between entertainment and art. And I want to know, like, do you see a difference between these things? I mean, I've made many videos about it. I know. (laughs) I think that they can overlap. And it's also, it's hard to make definitive statements about art, obviously. But so I'll speak from my own personal perspective. But like, to me, entertainment means pleasure. And to me, art doesn't have to mean pleasure. Like, art can make you feel an array of emotions and to me entertainment also signals like distraction like that's something that kind of comes up in my mind when i think of entertainment when i think about art i think about thinking or at least being moved to think moved to like understand things a bit deeper and to me those are kind of where they start to diverge a little bit and of course art can be entertaining yeah i don't know if all entertainment is art exactly that's exactly how i feel about it and i yeah, i think it's complicated i think in a way like you could describe almost any kind of human creation like as art in some capacity it i, I think it is something that each person like defines for themselves and i think you could make an argument for something being art that like someone else wouldn't see like an artful value in and that's kind of like the beauty of it i think it comes down to like it being a human creation and like feeling like it reflects some kind of like a human experience and you've said that exact same thing i yeah i'm saying that in my video kind of boldly that i think art is about human expression but like obviously it means something different to everyone but when i look up art on wikipedia and this is the definitive source for everything they say first sentence art is a diverse range of human activity and resulting product that involves creative or imaginative talent, expressive of technical proficiency, beauty, emotional power, or conceptual ideas. And, like, ChatGBT being the blurry JPEG that it is, like, it is taking information made by humans, right? So, like, it, it wouldn't have what it has. It wouldn't be here where it is without human involvement. I just think it's scary that these corporations don't care about the product because like to them profit is all that matters. Like these studio heads don't care. They don't care about art. And but the thing is, is that I also think like when we talk about like film, which is something we talk about a lot, we are coming from a specific viewpoint of like people who enjoy engaging with film for art's sake and want to like go to the theater to experience like an art house film where it's like majority of people go to the theater specifically to see blockbusters and i'm not saying that's a bad thing i'm not adding value to it i mean to be fair it's because that's all theaters are playing right now (laughs) it is but i think that that's partially a result of like that's what brings people to the theaters the numbers yeah right and like when the institutions that output art are being run by people who are putting capital before everything else then like that is what we're going to get that is what the result is going to be and they're going to find the way to do that as quickly and as like efficiently and as cheaply as possible. And, you know, I think 
like you were mentioning the MCU earlier, I think about how it has like impacted the film industry. Our neighbors are uh, in a performance group and currently they're doing choir practice in the room <laughs> next to us. So if that's what you guys hear, that is what that is. It's not a ghost. It's kind of awesome. Yeah. Ambiance. No, I, I just think about like how the MCU has like impacted the film industry and how those are the like highest grossing things that are being put out. And like really, if you wanted an AI to write like a plot summary for a Marvel movie especially if you're giving it like the pre-existing IP it's being adapted from, it could probably do a pretty proficient job oh, yeah. at it. That should be like a new test almost. Yeah. Like, and is the script good or could AI write it? Yeah. And like for a plot summary, like Marvel plots are really formulaic. Like they have this kind of three-act structure. There's like two battles. The first battle they sort of lose and then the last battle they ultimately win. They're pleasure optimizers. Yeah. You always know that things are for the most part going to work out. They also throw in little silly jokes here and there. Yeah. But even within the MCU, there are stark differences in quality from project to project. And even though, like, almost every film does adhere to that structure, like, the actual writing of that film does make a huge difference. I think you could argue that there is artistry in, like, Taika Waititi's approach to writing, like, the third Thor movie, which I have seen a lot of Marvel movies. And the first two Thor movies are really, 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 really bad. And I will say, like, Taika Waititi's was funny, and it was written in his, like, unique voice. And, like, is it sad that his talents are being used on that project instead of something original? Maybe. But, like, I think that if we're making, like, an argument for like, the value of screenwriters, it's like, yeah, because when you have a good screenwriter, you can take a film in, like, this really formulaic, really kind of uninspiring franchise and still have it stand alone pretty well. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like, those are the ones that people remember most and I feel like almost like the most out of the entire catalog. But then unfortunately, people are just going to like show up to see whatever thing because they found a way to like hook people into their greater story. But it's starting to wane. Like, I think interest in the MCU is starting to wane because it is getting, it's too oversaturated. Like, I don't think that they're pulling in as big numbers as they used to because it's just too much now. Like, yeah. people are tired of it. And I hear the quality, like, I haven't been following, I hear the quality is going down significantly. Yeah. And, like, wow, when we're talking about, like, the downfall of, like, the artistry of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like, you know, things are bleak. Even the quality of a lot of Netflix shows are going down because, yeah, the writers aren't getting treated properly. They're not getting enough time to flush out the work. It's very similar, and this is something we're going to talk about in the upcoming season, spoiler, about journalism, but just the way that People are kind of given these gigs, not given enough time to do it, and they just kind of have to write whatever they've got to write and get it out there. And it's it's not actually about letting it breathe, you know, and yeah. like letting them have the space, time, and money to do it. Yeah. yeah. And just like throwing shit at the wall, too. Yeah. And like seeing what sticks. Because they can. Because they can. That's kind of just the ultimate thing here, right? It doesn't matter if ChatGPT writes a bad script. These studios will use it because they can. And I think one of the scary things about the generative AI, too, is also the way that it's, like, it's at least on an aesthetic basis, like, I think it has shown that visually it's able to simulate the signifiers of different auteurs' works or, like, having a certain aesthetic. And while the writing might not reflect that tone of voice yet, like, there's fear that, like, eventually it will be able to mimic that. Yeah. And so you think about something like Wes Anderson and AI has been pretty good at like recreating the quote unquote Wes Anderson aesthetic, even if it couldn't write a Wes Anderson script. 
Well, yeah, and I think, you know, people like Wes Anderson who have these really distinctive kind of repetitive styles. I did have this thought the other day where I was like, can an AI write the next Wes Anderson script? Because honestly, his movies have been kind of, they're so hollow. To me, at least, his past few movies have been kind of flops creatively. But at the same time, like, Wes Anderson invented that style. He invented that genre. Wes Anderson had to live an amount of years on this earth, have the experience he did, have the brain chemistry he did, all of these things to be able to create that in the first place. And, like, I don't know, but I I kind of have a feeling AGI can't do that. Maybe in, like, 70 years when it's not an infant anymore. But I, I guess it just makes me think about, like, fashion as well. Like, we've had this conversation on the show in the past and the idea that you can take on an aesthetic that might come from certain context or history or like just mean something and like anyone can take it on Mm -hmm. and recreate it turn it into pastiche it's kind of just become so normalized that like you can't really do anything about it like nothing is safe and nothing is sacred and when you think about something like film like you know, Sofia Coppola, and we've talked about this a lot, you did a whole video on it for your YouTube, but like sometimes she's undermined for like the attention that she pays to the aesthetics in her work, but like they mean something to her, they're sourced, like she uses them to say something about her characters and the world that they live in. And they say something about her as a person. Yeah, and like the idea that like, because there are some pretty identifiable like signifiers of like a Sofia Coppola film, like an AI could just like scrape that And, like, recreate it, but without any of, like, the real thoughtfulness that goes into each little decision. Yeah. Like, you could have a girl looking out a window, but why is she looking out the window? Yeah. Well, because you want it to look like a Sofia Coppola movie. Yeah. Screenwriters aren't the only people in Hollywood whose jobs will be altered wildly by the use of AI. So, earlier this year, Netflix Japan made the news because they had used AI-generated art to paint the backgrounds in an anime short. This was because of a quote-unquote labor shortage, but ultimately, like, anime has just had a really big boom in the last few years. But the labor conditions of being, like, an animator or an illustrator in anime have also been brought to light as, like, being particularly poor. And, like, people are underpaid for the amount of, like, work that goes into, like, hand-drawn art. And so... Yeah, Netflix's solution to that was to team up with an AI company and just paint the background. And then SAG-AFTRA, the union which represents actors in America, is also in contract negotiations like the WGA was. And they've voted to authorize a strike should the AMPTP reject their proposals later this month. So people are kind of like waiting to see if they are going to strike because the use of AI has now become a big part of their negotiations The union already has protections against the use of digital doubles in their contracts for low budget and commercial work, but this would be the time to establish it with like the big guys. They intend to put into their basic agreement that the use of AI to recreate an actor's likeness for a new performance requires the consent and compensation of that actor. So they're not saying like you can't have like a double or you can't recreate someone via cgi or recreate their voice with ai but they have to be paid for the original labor and they have to agree to it and they have other issues right now that they are arguing for that have to do with like their compensation and their own residuals that like also might not be addressed and that could contribute to them striking but like the wj is really hoping that they do end up striking with them Mm -hmm. um because it really would send a powerful message you can't continue production without actors. You can't step around them. Unless you found some sort of 
slash robot to do the job. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Um, and the WGA, the Directors Guild, um, on the other hand, recently made an agreement with the AMPTP, which sees an increase in residuals and some language about AI that asserts that AI is not a human and cannot replace the duties performed by WGA members. But people see that as sort of like a strategic move on the AMPTP because by agreeing to that and then, you know, maybe agreeing to some things with SAG and getting them to like agree to their proposals, then the WGA will be on its own and they won't have the same backing and they'll be kind of pressured to like just give in. Like we said earlier, like Hollywood is in a unique position to make a statement about the use of AI because AI is coming for creative industries and like the white collar workforce at large. Like it is going to be an issue. So like the WGA and hopefully SAG like are in this really unique position to make a statement. As an industry, like we said, Hollywood is highly unionized and compared to the 2007-2008 strike, which you know, I saw as described as more of like a large show of solidarity. This one is more strategic. They're really shutting down productions. They're making kind of these guerrilla picket lines um, whenever like shows are trying to go and film on location or like start back up. And they've shut down production on a lot of shows. And also like since 2020, we've also as a culture become more like conscious of the idea of like labor rights. I think it's something that's been making the news more. So I do hope that SAG strikes and I think that like if they do and they bring even more attention to this issue, like they are potentially in the position to like set like some kind of cultural precedent or at least like start off conversations within other industries and like unions about ways to kind of stop the expansion of AI before it gets beyond our control. Also, just setting a precedent of, like, not obeying your employers. Like, this is something that's really hard to do in a lot of the corporate world. Yeah. Like, impossible. So, like, people can just get treated like garbage and not be able to say something about it. Maybe this will inspire more people to unionize. Yeah. Or maybe it'll just just shame people. If, If it becomes a big enough topic, I don't know. I mean... I don't think any of these people have any shame. That's true. I, I'm unsure if they even have feelings. So <laughs> to be honest, these people at the top. Talking about ongoing issues like this, issues that are still unfolding and like honestly by the time we put it out, I don't know, could have dated ourselves already. But like I think it's something we felt like we had to do because we're a show which talks about like what goes on on the internet and I think the future of the internet and the world around it like are going to be impacted greatly by these advancements in ai and also by the actions of people who are actually taking a stand against it this could impact everyone like it's it's not just something that anyone should look at and be like well couldn't be me like this could impact all of us so it's important to talk about it the more we talk about it the more we can maybe find solutions the more we can show support keep talking We're going to be putting out a third season soon. We're getting it ready for you guys. And we're excited to be back on your feeds. Clogging up those feeds. Clogging up those feeds more regularly. But I hope that you enjoyed this in the meantime. I I mean, hopefully we won't be replaced by AI. Because like truly couldn't AI say, I want to put my face all up in the meat of things. (laughs) 
Rehash is hosted by Hannah Rain and me, Maia. It's produced and edited by me, and the intro and outro song is produced by our talented friend, Ian Mills. Thanks for listening. <laughs>